Let me start at the beginning. It's always a good idea to start at the beginning. Those first two words of verse seven, it says, in him. And that, that too was called my imagination. It called Paul's imagination, the author of the letter, the Apostle Paul. This is one of his favourite expressions. It's one of his favourite ways of describing a follower of Jesus. And in the letters that he writes, he uses the phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, and in him, not once or twice, but he uses this expression 164 times. And I just kind of imagine the poor soul who must have looked through the New Testament and counted up how many times Paul had used this phrase. But it's a phrase that he uses to describe the position of the follower of or the believer in Jesus. And um, one of my favourite theological thinkers and authors, um, John Stott, he says this, he says, to be in Christ is not to be literally inside of him as tools are in a toolbox. And if you go down my garage, I have my dad's toolbox and it has my tools in it. But he says, it's not that. It's not as if tools are in a toolbox or clothes are in a wardrobe. Um, but he says it means to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body and as a branch is actually in the tree. And if we look closely, Paul has already started using this phrase um, because he speaks of the saints in Ephesus, or rather when he speaks of the saints in Ephesus, he speaks of the faithful in Christ Jesus. And we see that in verse 1. And in verse four, the phrase appears again, for he chose us in him, it says, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And this was a topic that Chris covered last week. Um, just looking at verse one, I just want to bring a conclusion. And um, it's use of the word saints. Um, this cropped up in a discussion we had the other week as a way of describing a follower is that no unbeliever will be found in Christ. It is a position occupied by a believer by faith, or as Paul puts it, the faithful. He describes those who believe as the faithful. And in another study that will come from Ephesians, we will understand that that faith to believe is itself a gift of God. But I do digress a little. So as verse seven unfolds, what I wanna do is to unpack verse seven and eight. Um, as it unfolds, we understand what we have in him because it's laid out for us in the verse. It says we have redemption. And we'll look at what redemption means in a moment. We have the means by which it was accomplished through his blood. And we have a brief outline of what redemption means, the forgiveness of sins. So all these things come along in verse seven. But let, let's take a look at this verse, begin to unpack it a little you know, what do we understand by this word redemption being used? And perhaps more importantly, what did Paul's readers understand by the use of the word redemption? Because we know with the passage of time, the meanings of words can change and also the cultural context can change as well. So if we take it back to its simplest form and we go from there, um, redemption means to be set free upon the payment of a price, or more particularly, a ransom. So to be set free upon the payment of a ransom. And of course, in the culture of Paul's time, um, there were an awful lot of slaves, and a slave would be set free 
upon the payment of a ransom. And of course, conversely, if no ransom was paid, then that slave would remain a slave and you would not have your freedom. Only upon the payment of a price would that slave have his or her freedom. So using this picture of a slave, what is it that we are slaves to then and need to be set free from? So we're talking about redemption. We're talking about ransom. What is it that we were in slavery to? What is it that we were slaves to? Well, when Jesus was teaching the people, he said this in John's gospel. He says, I tell you the truth, he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. When Paul was teaching elsewhere, he's teaching about righteousness in the book of Romans. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and I have been in the occasional Bible study where people have thought, well, actually, I am sinless. But do you know what? Paul makes it clear that all have sinned and we've all fallen short. So I've put these two verses together and come to the conclusion that we are all slaves to sin. So who is it then who would be able to pay the price, to pay the ransom, to set us free from being slaves to sin? Well, one thing that you cannot do is you cannot pay your own ransom because if you could you would not need setting free mark's gospel has the answer the words of jesus mark 10 verse 45 for even the son of man jesus said of himself did not come to be served but to serve and to do what to give his life as a ransom for many so here we have it only jesus could pay the price only Jesus could pay the ransom to set us free from being slaves to sin, or to put it another way, only Jesus could redeem us. And this, this, this model of redemption, it is not just found in the New Testament. If you know your Old Testament, it is found there as well. And it first appears in Exodus 6, verse 6. And these are the words of the Lord to the Israelites. He says, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you. There's our word. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. So we know, don't we, if we know our Old Testament history, that the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt, how they crossed the Red Sea miraculously on dry ground and they moved into all that God had for them in Cain. So in the Old Testament, we understand that redemption was freedom, if you like, from physical slavery. But in the New Testament, redemption carries with it the notion or the idea not of being released from physical slavery, but from slavery to sin. So how does this redemption come about? How was it accomplished? Well, our text, of course, provides the answer through his blood. And that is the blood of Jesus. And this is not the only place in the Bible where redemption through blood is mentioned. So it's not, it's not just mentioned once, it's mentioned on one or two occasions. I've already spoken about Paul from the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3 it was. And it says this, look, and it says, are justified freely by his grace. Grace crops up in a minute and we'll look at that. Through the redemption, there's our word that came by Christ Jesus, 
God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So Paul is speaking here about redemption and blood going hand in hand. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, this is Peter writing. For you know, he says, that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without defect. So we understand that redemption and blood go hand in hand. I think somewhere in Hebrews, just off the top of my head, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Um, have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die? Why did Jesus have to shed his blood for us? Was there no other way that God could find to deal with the situation, being all-powerful as he is? Why didn't God just brush it under the carpet look? brush things under the carpet that we don't want to deal with. Well, there was a man who lived in the 12th century, so this is, this is 900 year old wisdom, but because it's 900 years old, I think we ignore it at our peril. There was an archbishop called Archbishop Anselm, and he said this, he said, God's will is not his own in the sense that anything is permissible to him or becomes right because he wills it. God cannot deal with sin, except as in his holiness he perceives it. If he did not punish it or make adequate satisfaction for it, he would be forgiving it unjustly. You see that God cannot just do what he wants, because he is bound by the nature of his character. So if we understand that God is a just God, which he is, Deuteronomy 32.4 tells us, that he is a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he, then he cannot act unjustly and just do what he wants. We find that the shedding of blood in the Old Testament as the way that God had put in place to make atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. We've already used that word atonement before, and it speaks of one dying in the place of another and a bringing together. It speaks of a bringing together of man and God separated by sin. And in the Old Testament, the animal, as you know, would be sacrificed for the sins of the Israelites, bring them back into relationship with God. And it was something that would have to be done frequently because as the writer of Hebrews puts it, it could never take away sins. But what it did do was it pointed to what was to come. And in one of my commentaries, what it says is that it kind of compares this to the preliminary sketch um, of an artist, just like a rough pencil drawing, if you like. And the masterpiece is the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary. So we look forward to the greater sacrifice and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Indeed, Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, when this priest, Jesus, had offered one sacrifice for sins. It says he sat down at the right hand of God. No further sacrifice was necessary, my friends. Jesus was and is and always will be enough. And I love this imagery that he sat down. Why did he sat down? Sorry, why did he sit down? Forgive wrong tense. Um, he sat down because his work was finished. When I come in from work, what do I do? I sit down because my work is finished. Um, Jesus himself 
Um, he said in John 19.30, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And only the son who had finished his father's work would dare to sit down in his presence. Just excuse me while I get some water. Thank you. So we go back to verse 7. We understand that we are set free. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus and our sins are forgiven. Now earlier we touched on all have sinned. It's a phrase that I mentioned earlier from Romans 3. So we're all in the same boat in the eyes of God. That is that we've all sinned. But how is it? Let's have a look at how we got there. Let's have a look at some background. Um, and to answer that, we go back to the opening chapters of the Bible. We go back to Genesis and we go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam, the first man, was created, as you know, without sin. But because of his disobedience, um, because the devil succeeded in tempting him, he sinned and was banished from the presence of God. And I want you to understand that sin brings with it separation from God. Just think about Jesus on the cross. What did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time in Jesus's life when he was separated from his father was when he carried the sins of the world upon his shoulders. We go back to Adam. Paul writes about Adam in Romans 5, and he says, sin entered the world through one man. And Paul has Adam in mind. And he says, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So the actions of Adam bring sin and death into God's perfect creation. And it goes on to say that through the disobedience of the one man, this is Adam, the many that's us, we're made sinners. And I think it goes like this, because Adam, our representative in the garden, the representative of mankind, sinned in the eyes of God. We have all sinned, and we inherit from Adam a sinful nature, a tendency to do wrong in the eyes of God. But does God just leave us there, completely helpless and hopeless? Of course he doesn't, does he? Of course he doesn't abandon us. And the rest of Romans 5, it says, through the obedience of the one man, this is Jesus, many, this is us who believe, will be made righteous. So I think it goes like this. Adam's disobedience brings sin, um, death and separation from God into the world. This is why we needed a redeemer, this is why we needed Jesus. Whereas Jesus brings forgiveness of sins, life eternal, reconciliation with God. Jesus brings all these things that make you right with God, that make you right in the eyes of God. And verse 7 naturally runs into verse 8, and it says, In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And you know, do you know what? I'm drawn to that phrase where it says, he lavished on us, because this is one when we used to meet at Brewer Street that was one of my favourites. You know me, I have lots of different favourites for different occasions. But that phrase, he lavished on us. You know, someone who is lavish is someone who is generous, somebody who's not stingy, someone who delights to give away and doesn't count the cost of what he's giving away. And this phrase is used to describe the love of God in 1 John 3. I'm sure you'll know it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what, children of God. 
exclamation mark. And that is what we are. And then there's another exclamation mark. So to my way of thinking, out of the love of God, his grace is bestowed upon us. For surely grace comes out of love. Surely love has come to us. But what are the riches of this grace that God has lavished on us? Let's try and explain it. Well, we go back to verse seven and it speaks of redemption and forgiveness. So for me, the riches of God's grace that are spoken of here must surely be our salvation. And let us not underestimate it. Let us not take it for granted what God has done for us. And let me just try and share what I think God's grace actually is. There are a few ways that we can describe it. Grace is kindness shown to someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, I could share with you an example that I know I'm out driving at work and I am kind to somebody who is trying to barge past me down a narrow country lane and I'm gracious and I pull in. I don't think they particularly deserve it. So I am being gracious to them. Very poor example. But grace is kindness shown to those who don't deserve it. It is favour that is undeserved and it's used to describe the favour shown to sinners by Jesus Christ. Or it can be described as it is the unmerited favour of God towards sinful man. So God freely provides our salvation by grace. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. For it is, as Ephesians will go on to say in chapter 2, a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what I believe is happening is that the things you do, your works, are expressly excluded as a means of salvation. It is to Paul a matter that rests entirely on the grace of God. For grace is a gift of God, and the faith to receive it itself is a gift. But there are those who would say that salvation is by both the grace of God and also by what you do as well. And it was on that point many centuries ago that the Protestant reformers would distance themselves from the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Grace is not earned, it is not deserved, but rather the riches of God's grace have been lavished upon us in the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. So we've looked at, we've looked at redemption, we've looked at the forgiveness of sins, looked at the shedding of blood, We've touched a little bit on grace, and I'd like to move on to the last two verses that have caught my imagination. And it says this, I'll just refresh your memory. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even What's going on here? There's an awful lot to take in in these two verses. Um, and in, in trying to speak about these two verses, I speak of something that has not happened yet, or if it, um, yeah, so I speak of something that's either not happened yet or has begun to happen in part. Now, I have a translation of the Bible by J.B. Phillips, and he translates part of it as this. He says, God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan. God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan, and I just love the mystery that surrounds this. Instead of he made known to us the mystery of his will, 
But what plan is it that J.B. Phillips might be referring to? And the first thing I think we need to do is, is sometimes we need to approach scripture and we need to approach things from a different perspective. Because I think it goes like this. All too often we look at what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. We understand about the fact that we're redeemed and we're forgiven. Indeed, we've just spoken of it. And we stop there. We stop there and we think, well, yep, that's enough. Um, these verses speak of more than just our individual salvation. They speak of all things. Now, that phrase, all things, in the original Greek, means everything in the entire universe. It doesn't just mean this and that. It means everything. Um, it speaks of all things, that is, the universe, coming together under the headship of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that at the moment, Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. We see that in Colossians 1, 18. But these verses, they go on to say that one day, all things will have Jesus Christ as their head. And do you know what? As far as my imagination, what is, what is happening? You know, when Paul wrote these things to the Ephesians, he was under house arrest. Liberty was taken away. He did not have his freedom. But while they may have incarcerated him physically, his mind was set on things of eternity. And I love this. And what Paul does here is here, he lifts his vision. He lifts his gaze from his immediate surroundings, which at best would be depressing. And he fixes them upon the horizon. Now, looking to the horizon is something that Les mentioned in our pre-service prayer meeting where we just need to lift our vision, we need to lift our gaze, and we need to look to the Lord in all of his fullness. But he fixes them upon the horizon, upon eternity, Paul does, on that day when everything will come together under Jesus Christ. So what he does is he brushes off his present sufferings, and if anybody suffered for the sake of the gospel, we know it was certainly Paul, and he looks to the future. And you know, I'd like to encourage us that we need to do the same sometimes. We need to stop looking down. We need to start looking up at the Lord and his plan for all time. Anyway, Paul writes this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And he says this, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us what? An eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Just think about that for a moment. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Why? For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Paul encourages us to look to the things that we cannot see, to stop looking down and to start looking up. So, this great plan that J.P. Phillips speaks of has already begun. This great plan has already redeemed you and me. That much we understand from the verses that we've just looked at. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, as somebody else will speak on, the plan brings together both Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ. Anybody who is described as a Gentile is not a Jew by and you know what? In our 21st century culture, that may not seem like a big deal. I know there's a lot of trouble out in the Middle East at the moment. But 
This, this was no small thing for both parties who lived in hostility towards one another. In Jesus Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. This is what it says in chapter 2. And they have been brought together. Somebody else will be ministering on this. So we are redeemed. Jews and Gentiles are brought together, but you wouldn't think so sometimes by the way that they carry on. Um, so the believer, that's you and I, we've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled to one another. We have peace with one another through Jesus Christ. And that same peace with God, the believer has because they are believers. But the plan doesn't stop with Jews and Gentiles, with you and me, because our passage says, one day all things in heaven and on earth will be together under Jesus Christ. So does that mean that everyone will be saved? Some people look at this verse and they say, because it says all things, this must mean that believers and non-believers alike will be saved. And there are some people who like to think this. Now, the Bible is very clear that this is not in the case. As I said to you a little while ago, um, it was those who were in Christ Jesus that this letter was written to, those who had faith in Christ Jesus. And for instance, Matthew 25, verse 46 is very clear um, that uh, this is not the case. And this idea of everybody being saved is called universalism. Um, but the Bible does not teach it, but man does. Creation itself waits for the bringing together waits for the bringing together that's mentioned the ground that was cursed by its creator along with adam genesis 3 verse 17 waits for its liberation from decay paul writes in romans 8 21 and it waits for its renewal and i'd just like to read about this from the book of revelation and it says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so it goes on. It says there, I am making everything new. I don't think it's too far a stretch of the imagination to say that has already begun with you and I. What does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So just as you and I, we understand that we have been redeemed, we have been set free. Creation, I want you to understand that creation itself awaits its redemption. It awaits being set free from the decay that Paul writes about. So in the fullness of time, on that one day, everything that God has made new, the new heavens, the new earth, the new us, which is his church, his bride, will come together and he will be Lord of all. 
we will be his people, he will be with us, and he will be our God. This is what I think these verses talk about. They look to the future that so often we don't see because we're too busy looking ahead. So just to conclude, as the book of Ephesians unfolds before us, there will be many topics that we look at. Indeed, we've looked at some already. Last week, uh, Chris spoke about being adopted into God's family as his children. This week, we've looked at redemption and the forgiveness of sins. But I want to speak to you about the overriding theme over all of these topics woven through these chapters is the working out of God's great purposes in bringing everything together under the headship of Jesus Christ. John Stott again. He speaks of time merging into eternity and of history moving towards its goal. In the Greek, the verb that we translate as to bring together is very rich in symbolism and it speaks of a summing up and it speaks of a gathering together of all things. Because, you know, my friends, God has not just brought you to himself. He's not just brought you and me to himself, but he is bringing all things to himself under the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's just conclude by praying. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that we are adopted in your family. We thank you that we understand we are your children and you would have us grow and mature and not stay as children. We thank you for our redemption. We thank you that we have been set free by the payment of a price. And that price was the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, a lamb without defect. We thank you that we have forgiveness of sins. We thank you that this was all accomplished by the grace of God that has been freely lavished on us, not because we earned it or because we deserve it, but because you are a God of love and out of that love, you look upon us graciously. And Lord, we thank you that for all these things you have done for us, there is this great master plan that you are unfolding where you will bring all things together under the headship of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, though we don't fully understand it, we shouldn't ignore what you write because we don't understand it. So Lord, I thank you for what you have done. But Lord, I thank you for what you are doing and I thank you for what you will do as well. And Lord, we look forward to that great and glorious day when we will be with you forever, when you will be our God. We will be your people. And Lord, I thank you so much for what you have done and what you are doing. In your precious and wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen.